For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, county election races are starting to take shape and we'll take a closer look. Find out why a Tucson man is making a marathon run to Phoenix. Hear the amazing true story of how an Iowa farm boy ended up stranded alone in South Africa in 1901. And Dimelo investigates the purpose of a miniature army that's being assembled in Tucson. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Earlier this week, candidates for state and local political offices in Arizona filed their petitions to run in this year's primary elections. Voting takes place on August 30th. Political reporter and Metro Week host Andrea Kelly is here in the studio to talk about the local Pima County races. Hello, Andrea. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So it looks like voters are going to have a number of options in deciding whether we'll see new faces on the Pima County Board of Supervisors this next year. No matter where you live in Pima County, you're going to be able to vote in the supervisor's race. All five supervisors represent a specific district, so you only get to vote for the one in the district you live in. But all five seats are up this year, and the four incumbents are seeking re-election, and they all have challengers. And the fifth seat is open because Ray Carroll is not seeking another term, so it's an open seat, and it's got a lot of people running in that seat, too. So everybody gets a choice on the Pima County board later this year. At this stage, are you expecting to see much of a change in the makeup of the board? That's a little hard to predict, uh, but it's possible because there are primaries in two districts. The first one is um, the Northwest Side District 1, where Republican Allie Miller is the supervisor. She's got a primary challenge from another Republican named John Winchester. So depending on how Republican voters feel, she could uh, win or lose that primary and then There are two Democrats also running. So in November, we'll see one Republican, one Democrat in that race. And then, as I mentioned, over in District 4, where Ray Carroll is not returning, there are three Republicans seeking that seat um, and a Green Party candidate also. And then all the other seats where uh, Democrats are running, they also have challengers from other parties. So it's hard to predict, but certainly it's a possibility. Let's talk about some of the other important races, including sheriff, county attorney, and county recorder. Is there anything newsworthy that's uh, come up about the primaries yet? Well, again, voters have choices, and I think that's not necessarily um, a given in every election. So we've got a Democratic primary for county attorney. Barbara LaWall is running for re-election, and um, an attorney named Joel Feynman, another Democrat, is running against her. Whoever wins that will face a Green Party candidate. And then also there's two Republicans and a Democrat running for sheriff. So the law enforcement races are probably going to get a lot of attention just because there are so many candidates in those as well. And these are all going to be on your ballot along with congressional races, U.S. Senate, president, legislature, and other local offices. So um, these are going to be in a mix of a lot of different choices voters have. Education is always a controversial topic in Arizona, especially in recent years. What are you seeing in the education-related races? First of all, there's a lot of school board elections this year, but the one that everybody will get to vote on is the Pima County Superintendent of Schools. That position is up. The incumbent is not seeking it, so it's an open seat. Last year, in the Tucson City Council election, Republican Margaret Burkholder ran for a seat and lost. Now she's back running for superintendent of schools in Pima County. She's a teacher in the Vale area, so she is now trying to seek a, a 
after losing a city seat, trying to seek a county-wide seat. So it'll be interesting to hear from her. Uh, she'll have more, a little bit more political background than some of the others in that race. It sounds like this is actually a remarkable year for the amount of political change that could be occurring in Arizona. Yeah, the potentials are endless. And what I really want to stress is people should be expecting a really long ballot with a lot of different choices and just you know take their time as they look through it. And we're just talking about the August primary at this point. Then comes the November general election. So it's a busy political year and people are going to have to pay attention if they're going to understand what they want to do. That makes me think that with the amount of attention that's being spent on the race for president, that there may be some voter fatigue setting in by the time these races um, are on the ballots. Voter fatigue, reporter fatigue, candidate fatigue is all going to be all around. And actually, that's um, what I'm addressing in this week's Metro Week episode is how those national races, specifically the presidential race, will filter down and affect positively or negatively these local races. Viewers can see Metro Week Friday at 6.30 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. The program is also available online at azpm.org. Thanks for your time, Andrea. You're welcome, Mark. It's always good to be here. The next time you drive the distance between Tucson and Phoenix in the summer, think about what it would be like to cross it without a car. When Jeff Schmidt was diagnosed with gout a little over four years ago, it was a wake-up call for the then 40-year-old Tucsonan. Using resources he found through the University of Arizona, where he is a student, Schmidt was able to kick his 18-year smoking habit and lose more than 50 pounds. Now at age 44, he completely and happily identifies himself as a runner. Next week, he embarks on a test of fitness and willpower that not many would attempt, running from the University of Arizona Cancer Center to the Cancer Center in downtown Phoenix. I talked with him about how this idea took shape. I had three goals when I started, to run the next race, to run a marathon, and to run Boston. And so far to date, I've completed the first two goals. A year ago in November, I ran my first 50-miler. Where does your interest in doing a run that's charity-based and driven by supporting cancer research come from? Cancer is no stranger to my family. Uh, My mom is a survivor. I have a cousin who's also a cancer survivor. But last year, a year ago in April, my brother-in-law, Steve Hollingworth, died of brain cancer. And uh, leading up to to his death, I felt so uh, helpless. Uh, And I think that's a big thing with cancer is that uh, those around cancer don't really know how to deal with it, don't really know what to do, uh, and nothing seems to be enough. So I decided to combine my passion for running uh, with the personal nature that cancer touched my family and I ran my first 50 miler, which was the Colossal Cave Veil 50-50. And I used that opportunity to raise money for my brother and sister. And I was just amazed at the generosity of the people around me uh, that really rallied to uh, complete strangers and donated to help them out as they, they went through that process. So outline the nature of the run that you're going to be taking next weekend. I'll be starting at the Cancer Center at the U of A, just north of Campbell, and running along the uh, Rieto path once I get up there, as far as I can until I get to the frontage road. And I've mapped it all out. I am planning on running uh, past Chase Field uh, to the Cancer Center up in Arizona. 
Um, and then after that, my sister and her family are coming out, and we're going to go to the Arizona Diamondbacks Marlins game. How do you intend for this run to raise support or awareness about cancer in Arizona? About two or three months ago, I found out about a program called Better Than Ever. Every participant in Better Than Ever is, takes on the responsibility of raising $250 to fund cancer research grants at the U University of Arizona Cancer Center. This was a really a perfect fit for me because they have a portal through which people can donate so that I don't have to set up a GoFundMe account where anybody's skimming anything off the top. They've been extremely supportive and have offered that uh, anyone that makes a donation over $50 can get a t-shirt, they can get a race bib, and they can get a finisher's medal um, sent to them uh, so that people can feel engaged and maybe join in and be an ambassador and run or walk a mile uh, wherever they are in the world. Jeff, what is your age? I'm 44 years old. You strike me as a very healthy guy. Now, you said you made a turnaround and you made some changes in your life. You lost weight and you quit smoking. Mm -hmm. Share with us what was the hardest thing for you to do to become the guy you are now. Um, I, I hate to say this because I think about this a lot, but there's no magic bullet um, for me to make that change and to go on the diet. I think the first week or maybe two weeks of the diet, which was a paleo diet, was the hardest, but my appetite really did fall away after that, and it became pretty easy. But I think about it a lot. What was that magic that got me from being the person that always wanted to get in shape to being the person that got in shape? I would say that um, as far as racing and running goes and, and kind of challenging yourself with those kind of goals, it's not easy and it's not fun when you first start out. But if you have the three Ps in your corner, it makes it a lot easier. You need good people to run with and keep you accountable. You need a good plan, not something that's going to push you too hard and uh, make you drop out. And then you need to have a purpose, which would be to sign up for the race three months out, six months out, but put your money, put some skin in the game. And once you have those three things, every time you go out on your plan and do your workout, you're going to have it in the back of your head that I'm doing this, you know, and, and I'm doing this because I'm going to run this race. And then just be kind to yourself and, and do your best and, and just let it be what it's going to be. How long do you estimate it's going to take you to run the distance? I've given myself two days, and I'll be running overnight. So uh, to take a little of the drama away from the run, I won't be running under the sun, just for safety issues. I think I can make it up to Picacho Peak, uh, which is about 50 miles, in under 12 hours or maybe right around 12 hours. I've given myself two days to do the run, so I might even get a chance to go to a hotel and take a shower before I go to the game or something like that. Um, but no promises that I'll be able to stay awake while I'm there. Can you give us some idea of the kind of headspace that you go into when you're doing a run like that? Something that I found in doing some of the long distance running that I've done is that when you purpose to do something and you commit to it, different mantras kind of present themselves for different runs. Uh, sometimes it could just be one foot in front of the other. Uh, other times your mind might wander to your friends. And, and speaking of that, I plan to have some of my best and closest friends pacing me for some of the miles uh, to keep me company and keep me safe. But it really is just one foot in front of the other. I haven't done this distance before, um, but something that a, a close friend told me once was that if it doesn't scare the heck out of you, it's not worth doing. It's okay to be scared. 
and it's okay to doubt myself and all of these things because every long run I've done, I've had doubts, but I know it's going to be okay and I know I can do it. Jeff Schmidt begins his Tucson to Phoenix run at 7 p.m. on Friday, June 10th. You'll be able to follow his progress via a GPS beacon, and the link is on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. After he's had time to rest, we'll have Jeff Schmidt back to find out about the experience. Author and progressive political activist Jack Bybee is a transplanted Tucsonan who hails from South Africa because of a strange turn of fate that happened at the dawn of the 20th century. Jack's grandfather, Frank Rudd Bybee, was only 16 years old when he was kidnapped and forced to set sail as a crewman on a merchant ship in 1901. The elder Bybee's one and only journey at sea ended in Cape Town, South Africa, After more than nine years of research, the facts of the story, mixed with some historical fiction, are in an independently published book called The Journal of Rudd by Jack Bybee. Here's this lonely, confused, isolated old man, and I sat on his knee, and I said, but why do you speak so strangely? I'm American. Where's that, Grandpa? Sort of, you know, that type of thing. And then, oh, I came on a ship. I said, well, how did you get off the ship? Oh, I helped to save the life of the first mate. We got hit by a great swell. And that explained to me in later days why he never went back, because the old man was terrified of any expanse of water. When uh, I mean, Santa comes in on a surfboard uh, around Christmas time in uh, South Africa. In South Africa, yes. right? And invariably, we go down, or we did as children and family, went down to the seaside, and we'd go camp at Gordon's Bay, and it's it's wonderful. The old man would never come along with us because you never know when a great swell could come. I'm certain now uh, he had developed PTSD because I, I have memories of my mother sitting at uh, at Sunday table with the Reader's Digest Atlas open. Here, Dad, this is where Cape Town is, and this is America, and there is Iowa. And you see the blue here? That's water. <laughs> yes. No, nope, I don't want to go there. He didn't even want to see a representation of it. Close it. What happened to your grandfather when he was kidnapped? As far as I can understand, in Paradise, Iowa, there was a little homestead. Um, he got a note from a brother, Charlie Elmer, for help. He went off to San Francisco because a naive farm boy at 16, 17 years old, he agreed to go to a party on board a sailing ship, (laughs) and that changed his life. Let this be a word of warning to everyone listening, particularly (laughs) 16-year-old boys. (laughs) Especially 16-year-old. But the major thing was, in Oregon, and California, I presume, there were two laws. One was the White Act and the other one was the Menzies Act, which made it perfectly legal to kidnap 
young boys and throw them on board sailing ships because the clippers would come because of the gold rush, the crew would leave, and the ships would be there without crew. So he awoke in the brig of a sailing ship heading south, uh, ostensibly to London, but via Cape Horn. They went through Cape Horn um, in the South Atlantic off the coast of Argentine. Uh, they got hit by a rogue wave. Um, on Carampo's knee, he said, we persuaded the captain to head for the nearest shore i.e. mutiny, and that nearest shore turned out to be Cape Town, South Africa, because he saved the life of the first mate in the process of being here, of the rogue wave and all that, which must have been terrifying. I mean, plain, short, and simple. Um, He was allowed his freedom in Cape Town. And he headed inland and never wanted to see an expanse of water again. I can't imagine what a young man with his background would do suddenly, given no possessions, no support. He has his freedom, but little else. And he's determined to walk back to Iowa. (laughs) (laughs) That's what my, my mother had to deal with from time to time. Jack, how much of the story in the Journal of Rudd is based on fact, and how much came from your own imagination as fiction? I'm grateful to a distant relation of mine who did the genealogy of Frank Rudd Bybee, my great-grandmother, great-grandfather, and the Bybee boys in Paradise, Iowa, where they were born and raised. Um, That is all a genealogy. I've got the facts. Where the fiction comes in is between being uh, kidnapped or thrown on board the sailing ship in San Francisco and landing in Cape Town. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, a good bit of South Africa is also fiction. Well, you did choose to include a few historical figures in the story, though, to add more of an impression of that era and what it was like. So tell us, uh, who are the characters from history that you chose to use? I figured that Grandpa hit Table Bay in the shores of Cape Town um, in 1903. And to my amazement, uh, in 1903, Mahatma Gandhi was being thrown off a South African railways train. Uh, The young Winston Churchill was a war correspondent, uh, and if I'm not mistaken, he was reporting for the Morning Post in England. His aunt, Lady Sarah Wilson, was being held captive by the Boers. Rudyard Kipling was living in a house off the university, off the campus of the University of Cape Town. Uh, Hassel John Rhodes was the premier of the Cape Colony. He was the fellow who owned most of the diamond mines in Kimberley and was determined together with Rudyard Kipling to paint all of Africa from Cape Town to Cairo all red. Uh, It didn't work because he got as far as Rhodesia and Zambia. So there was an amazing uh, maelstrom of history going on at that point in time in South Africa. You can hear Jack Bybee read an excerpt from the Journal of Rudd with an account of his grandfather's close encounter with a pod of whales. It's on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org.
You may have seen some unusual mailboxes around town, including one that resembles a cactus or one that lights up. They're part of our community storytelling project, Dimelo, and they were designed and created by Tucson artist Rudy Flores. But Flores has another project that is telling Tucson's stories in its own way. Next, we visit his studio to learn about the army he's creating, a miniature green plastic army that may include people you'd recognize. This is the downtown art studio where Rudy Flores works. Lately, all kinds of people have been passing through. Musicians, artists, people in fantasy costumes, and U.S. Marshals. Can I ask you what you brought? Sure, uh, my vest, um, my duty belt, and a long arm shotgun. Casual, yeah, that's why um, when I asked Rudy and we were to go back and forth, I'm like, Hey, just to let you know, this is what we're bringing, you know, to make sure it was, uh, so we didn't scare him. Yeah, no, that's fine. I appreciate it. What they all have in common is that they all came here to be 3D scanned and printed into tiny green plastic figures. All right, my name is Rudy Flores, and I, uh, I'm a 20-year graphic designer and sign maker, and currently working on a project called the Army Man Project, scanning locals, uh, Tucsonans, artists, business people, and making small figures out of them for an exhibit at some point. Mostly just, you know, to show appreciation for the people that make up this city. And, you know, so many things going on, and it's really nice being able to sit down with them one-on-one -on -one and let them get in their pose and kind of convey, you know, what they do in just a, a still pose and try to capture that moment. Rudy shows me his cabinet full of 3-inch and 7-inch army figures of Tucsonans. Seems like so far, he's captured a lot of moments. This is Tim. He's a bar owner here in town, and that's him with a, with a pint glass. Uh, this is a, a DJ we did named Spencer. He brought his turntables down. This is a Marissa. She's, a, she's a, a trainer. Yeah, she brought down some weights. That was a fun one, too. And this is Josh. The Army Man Project appeared on Kickstarter in June 2015. It was fully funded within two weeks. Rudy now has printed nearly 300 army figures of Tucsonans. Once he has fulfilled his Kickstarter quota, they are due to be exhibited at Hotel Congress as a sort of retrospective of the Tucson community, in miniature. Somebody kind of called this whole project a cultural army. Rudy's a quiet kind of guy with a knack for technical knowledge who never thought he'd be teaching himself 3D printing. He wanted to fly planes because his dad worked for Davis Monthan Air Force Base as part of the Air National Guard. Yeah, I used to work on, yeah, F-16s on fighter jets. You know, that's what I wanted to do, you know, when I was growing up. You know, just seeing him work on these things, he'd bring me all these photos and, you know, patches and stuff. And I was so intrigued by it. And then I ended up having to wear glasses. And I don't think you're allowed to be a pilot, you know, wear glasses. So, instead of flying planes, he worked at a record shop, then settled into a job designing and restoring signs at Cook & Company Sign Makers, where he's been working for the last 20 years. Uh, we did the, um, the Diving Girl right near Armory Park. We did uh, the Tropicana. We did the Canyon State. Uh, we just finished Riviera. But yeah, they bring them to us and they're just in horrible shape and they don't seem like they can be salvaged and you know, you just have to gut them basically. Then, five years ago, he got divorced. 
Rudy basically stopped sleeping, started working evenings, weekends, and on lunch breaks. For the first time ever, Rudy started creating personal art on the side, which is how the Army Man project happened. I needed to focus on something and just basically just stay out of trouble. So I just picked the one thing that was familiar, but, you know, it kind of got me through, just art, you know, posted, get involved in things I shouldn't be, you know, I chose, you know, art, just because it, it's something I hadn't explored and I knew there was venues for me to kind of get that, those feelings out. You know, mostly because my kid, you know, I don't want to be that dad, it just like goes off the deep end, you know, it just there's no reason for that. The first person Rudy ever scanned and printed was his 13-year-old son, Gabe. Each and every scanning session Rudy does is its own unique, intimate experience. There's a lot of quiet during the scanning, but there are also moments of sharing about life and work. Like with Al, a U.S. Marshal who is leaving for a new job in Sacramento this month. His scan is a going away present from his coworker. September 11th, my wife's uncle worked at the World Trade Center and he called in sick that day. Um, after everything was said and done, I told her I couldn't sit on the sidelines. Um, I had been a paratrooper in the army for six, almost six years prior to that and sitting on the sidelines was not my gig. And graffiti artist and muralist Rock Martinez muses on what drives his art while he gets scanned by Rudy. More of my stuff is, uh, it's just beautification rather than destruction. That's kind of how I view it. I never, never thought of it as like throwing rocks through an abandoned building's windows, you know. Um, for me, I, I just, I try to create something uh, that kind of has like a shock and awe factor to it that people can't believe that I've done it with a spray can. The Army Man Project for some is about making themselves into an action figure. For others, it's about creating a memento. For Rudy, it's just about having genuine human interactions. For me, it's always fun when new people come down to the studio and they see their friend or somebody they might know as a figure or see them in the book of guests that we have. You know, and it just, you get this sense of community. You know, I, I love that part of it. because like, oh, I know that person. I used to work with them, you know, and it's leading up to this exhibit where, you know, all these little figures will be in, these people may get reacquainted or, you know, we've had people who become friends because of this. That, to me, that's an added value. I'm Sofia Parisakar for Dimelo Stories. Dimelo is a community-driven storytelling project. Add your voice. Go to dimelostories.org or drop a postcard in one of the special mailboxes around town. Dimelo is part of a national initiative called Finding America, presented in collaboration with AIR, the Association for Independence in Radio, supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood, with assistance from Isaac Rodriguez. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore.